Have you ever heard of Kelly Corrigan? She has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah magazine, no big deal, calls Kelly the voice of a generation. Well, she also has a podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and it is awesome. Thousands of five-star reviewers say she is thought-provoking, funny, and authentic. And it has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore to Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithgott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Subscribe to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hey, everyone. First off, we want to thank you for listening to No One Is Coming to Save Us. And now we want to hear from you, what you've learned, what's sticking with you, what questions you still have, and what you're motivated to do as a result of listening. Right now, you can take our short survey to help us better understand the impact of our work. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet, I promise, and it will really help us keep bringing you content you love. Take the survey at bit.ly slash no one survey. That's bit.ly slash no one survey. Thanks again. Lemonada. Hello, Denver. This audience looks so good. No One Is Coming to Save Us is created in partnership with Lemonada Media and Neighborhood Villages. So if you've been listening to season three, and I hope that you have, you know we're doing something pretty special by taking the show on the road across the country. And we are still talking about all the problems in childcare. That is the never-ending topic. (laughs) But we are also really shining a light on the solutions to the crisis. And we're learning so much from the advocates we speak to. Um, I, I now kind of whisper, actually, they are coming to save us. We are coming to save ourselves. Because I see so many positive things happening. We're here today, live in Denver, uh, to hear from some of those amazing advocates who work so hard to make childcare affordable and accessible. We love those two words for all the families across the state of Colorado. In a moment, we're going to hear about those challenges that all the families, all the communities here are facing with the high cost of childcare and the lack. I think I saw today, Colorado, 51% of the people in the last data that I looked at were in childcare deserts. That's not acceptable. Colorado leaders are really tackling those issues head on with major new investments, right? It takes money to do this in new universal preschool programs, supporting new investments in facilities where they are needed and redesigning their early childhood system. And I struggle a lot with that word redesign because initially I felt like we just need to scrap it and start over. I think there's a good conversation to be had around that because it has never been what it should be and what many of our colleagues in other countries have and enjoy, right? It is a right. But I've learned that While the system needs to be redesigned, the people in it do not. There are wonderful, incredible, passionate people. I've spoken to a lot of them who are so dedicated, even though maybe they've had to go take that job at Starbucks, at Amazon, wherever it is, many have stayed and we're hoping that many come back. And in a place like Colorado, where money is being put into creating more spaces, 
one of the things that's so interesting is that it goes really to provider pay, which is exactly where it needs to go. So we're going to talk about all of that. And first, I have to say a big thank you to our sponsor and partner, Gary Community Ventures, and our host, Rocky Mountain PBS, as well as Colorado Children's Campaign and Epic. All of them have collaborated in making this event possible. We would not be here without any of them. So thank you so much. I want to introduce you to our panel. Sitting right next to me is... Lauren Duke. She is the communications director for Steamboat Ski and Resort. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Thank you so much. I am honored to be a part of this conversation today. We're honored to have you. Next to Lauren is Natrice Bryant. Natrice Bryant is the public-private partnership director for the Department of Personnel and Administration with the state of Colorado. Welcome, Natrice. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Rounding out the panel, we are delighted to have Representative Lorena Garcia, who represents the 35th District in the Colorado House of Representatives. She's also the Executive Director of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition. Welcome. Thank you. It's pretty rad to be here. It's so great to see all of you here. I'm so glad to be here with you. I want to start with Lauren. Lauren, I believe there is a personal story you have to share with us. But on the topic of the need for childcare in Colorado's rural and mountain towns, it is significant. You recognized there was a major missing link for families, a major need among your colleagues at the ski resort. So can you tell us about the resort's work, your work, and how really you led the effort with colleagues to create a child care center at the resort? Yes. So I'm going to paint a little picture. It is spring of 2021, and I had just had my daughter, and my colleague, my amazing colleague, had had her son one year prior, and we had a brand new colleague who had four-year-old twins. And all three of us were talking, and we were at kind of a pivotal point in our careers because we all love what we do at our jobs, but I had yet to find childcare for when I was done with maternity leave. Our colleague who had moved for this job on the condition of having childcare, her class had closed. And my other colleague who, uh, her son went to the only facility within a 20 mile radius called Little Lambs. It was closing because the, the woman in charge had just kind of had enough of being in the childcare sphere. So here are three amazing women who have been dedicated to their careers that were about to lose childcare or didn't know where they were going to find it. And we bonded over a little podcast called No One Is Coming to Save Us. And after venting our frustrations, we finished the sentence and we said, no one is coming to save us, so we are going to save ourselves. And we banded together with other parents in our community and at the resort, and we decided there was a need for our employer to step up to the plate. In a rural community, um, in a mountain community, maybe a little bit dissimilar to a city, there are not massive amounts of resources to try and create a center or opportunities to look for other companies or other entities and organizations to be the ones who make the change. So we felt as one of the largest employers in our county, it was our responsibility to step up to the plate and aid our community in this critical benefit. We couldn't solve it. We knew we could not solve it, but it was our responsibility to help find solutions for it. And within 15 months, I am thrilled to say we went from the concept to opening doors and having 35 additional children in our community find childcare. Okay, so I'm going to ask 
Two questions. The first, I want to hear about that first day. 15 months is no time, as everyone in this, in this fight knows. How did you make it happen in 15 months? And what was that first day like when those doors opened? Great question. So um, where it first started was making our leadership team understand that this was not a um, potential ask. This was a demand. This was not something that we could overlook any longer. Coming out of COVID, it was even more noticeable that we needed staff at our company. And if we didn't provide the critical benefits that allowed staff to be available for our workforce, we were never going to be able to produce the quality product that we were known for. And so really the hardest part was taking two months to convince leadership that we need to do this and P.S., we are a business that is only generating revenue. We're going to lose money on this, and there's no way to look around it. So we were able to get um, buy-in, but then it took probably another four months for us to convince people it is okay to subsidize to the tune of at least $200,000 a year. Even after we had found our facility, we had hired our director, and we were hiring our staff, we were still having the difficult conversations about how this is not going to generate revenue. And I would say we still have those conversations today. People are looking for opportunities to make this a revenue generator, and it's never going to be. It's a benefit for our employees, and so we are going to have to bite the bullet and have a subsidization. So did the folks that you went to, did they understand that when you say the word benefit, it's also a right? You know, there's a large a large degree of people out there talking about this who fight vehemently for childcare and early education to be seen as a right. And I would argue there's some connective tissue between what happened at the resort and moving in that direction. That may be, you know, a contentious discussion, but it's one way to look at it. So was it seen as a right? Yes. So we were lucky that there were examples in the business sector that that kind of had no argument against them. So we at the in the outdoor industry could really rely on Patagonia. Patagonia has had an employer-based child facility for over 30 years. And their statistics are 100% return rate of female employees in that 30 plus years. That's irrefutable. And when we presented that to our leadership, they really did not have an argument for it. For a company that is trying to focus on a culture and retaining and recruiting employees, that's a no-brainer. That's absolutely where you want to start. And now what's what it's evolved into, and I definitely want to talk about this more a little bit later, is we believe that it's our responsibility now to be leaders in this and to help tell the story of why employer-based facilities are a solution for the problem at this moment in time. Right now, Steamboat is an exception, and we should not be. We should be part of the solution, and everyone should be, it should be an expectation that child care, not an exception that child care is a benefit for an employee. Patrice, I want to take it to you, and I want to hear about how your office, which is doing amazing things that you lead, how your office is addressing the child care needs in the state, but also tackling housing. And when I read that and did the research on it, immediately what came to my mind is this domino effect, because we see food-unstable children coming into centers where the provider is also food-unstable. And then you have housing. There's just this domino effect that can be tied back to the fact that we're not we're not finding a way to take care of people when they become parents. So how is your work connecting all of these ideas that run on parallel tracks? That's a great question. Um, so I'll kind of start with my own personal story. I started working in government 17 years ago, and I remember thinking, 
I'm going to have a child at some point in time. And then poof, I did. (laughs) All of a sudden I had this wonderful little baby girl. I was 25 years old. And I remember thinking, how am I going to take care of her? Like, how are we going? And I worked at a job that had me working hours at like three o'clock in the morning. And then I would get off at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And so my husband ended up staying at home, which was kind of a shift for families. And we were, we were privileged enough to be able to have a one income household. And then all of a sudden that shifted and that shift turned into now we had to find childcare because my husband was going back to work. And I wasn't prepared for that. I, I went in and I was walking around. I did the Google search and looked up how many stars each childcare center had and looked up reviews. And I went to this childcare center and I said, okay, so how much is this going to cost me? And they told me the cost. And I said, perfect. That's per month. Right. And they're like, nope, per week. And I said, oh, okay, I got this. (laughs) Okay. So sacrifices were something that we started with. And so I didn't actually realize personally what the impacts were for childcare until I actually had to experience it. My daughter's 17 now, so she can do her own thing. She drives, she's transporting. It's great. We're excited about it. But when she was one and two, I had to actually figure out what I was going to do and who was going to take care of her. So I started my career looking at and advocating for people who typically don't have the ability to Google a five-star childcare center and say, I'm going to go there and I'm going to pay this amount of money because they don't have that, that benefit. When I look at that, I, I was working in housing. I worked at the Department of Local Affairs where we oversaw a lot of community work. I did the Department of Regulatory Agencies where I did financial education to communities that specifically were disenfranchised across the state. And I hear these stories about childcare. I can't go back to work because I don't have anyone to watch my baby. And so when I was graciously enough offered this position, I said, we're going to take some state land. Statutorily, we have to, right? But we're going to take some state land and we're going to look at how do we redevelop this to help with our highest needs, which is housing and childcare. And so what we're looking at in some projects that we're doing is taking those state parcels. We were obligated through statute to put together a list and we created this map that shows all of our state parcels that are considered underutilized and unutilized. So state land that's kind of sitting, it might be a parking lot, it could be nothing. It could be where we store gravel. And looking at how do we repurpose that for community benefit. And our office is really passionate about doing that work. But what we found, the math is not mathing. And so when we want to build a child care center, there is a subsidy that we have to look at. And so one solution that we found, and it's not a one size fits all. If you've built one child care center, you've literally built one child care center. And finding ways in which we could have the housing cost subsidize the cost of the childcare center. So for example, we're working on a project in Steamboat where the first floor is early childcare. Floors two through four, two through five will be housing. And that housing component will help pay for some of the cost, as you stated, it's not a revenue generator, pay for some of the cost that will help provide childcare for that community. That is a model that we would like to try to replicate on some of our other parcels. We have approximately 55 parcels of land that are listed on our map. And looking at those across the state, I have different community needs across the country and across the state. So I can't look at Steamboat and say, we're going to replicate that in Denver. I can't look at Denver and replicate that in Lakewood. And so there are specific workings that we have to do from community impact, from talking to community members. And as a government, we can't just build it and assume that people will come. And so there has to be discussions about what does affordability look like? How do we put things in place intentionally so that we're working with community to figure out what those community needs are, whether it's partnering with a school district, partnering with a local community provider, or even partnering with a nonprofit. There has to be a multitude of partners in order for us to make the math work. 
I also read that you were focused on providing employees of the state government department's child care. Where does that come into it? So with that, we do have state land on certain parcels for our departments. So we have 22 departments that we work with and we identify state land that would be beneficial to them. One example is the Department of Corrections. Um, we have a lower number of staff that are able to work there because they don't work eight to five. They work two o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock. It depends on what, this, what the schedule looks like. And so one of the things that we've heard, we've done surveys, we've talked with staff to say like, why is it that we have a lower number of people working here? And it's because they can't find access to childcare. Who's watching their baby or their child at two o'clock in the morning? Who's, and we don't know what that looks like. We might be able to provide extended hours, but that is something that we've really focused on to figure out in our highest need departments, how can we as an employer provide the services that they're raising their hands and telling us that they need so that we can start filling the gaps. And so that's one of the things that our office also focuses on when we're building early childcare. I mean, this is really interesting to me because I don't think I've been anywhere in which the first two questions have gone so directly to employer-provided childcare. It's it's really, you know, it's a hot issue of contention out there. It is not a perfect solution. We all wish early education and childcare was seen as a right. So that conversation is is tough. Um, Lorena, I want to take it to you. And one thing that Therese said we were just in another room chatting before we came out here, and I shared the story that when my mother was 20, my oldest sister was one, and uh, she had dropped out of college. She had the baby. She was married by that point, and she had to go back to work, and so she needed someone to care for her child, and she literally, I said, Mom, what did you do? And she knocked on doors in the neighborhood, and I was like, Mom, what did you say? I'd never heard this story, and she said, well, I didn't Google babysitter. I said, my name is Charlotte. My daughter is Jody. I'm looking for someone to care for my child so that I can go to work. That was 1963. 2023, we're still saying the same thing. What my mom found was a kind neighbor who was taking in children in the neighborhood. It's very similar to the work that you are passionate about with the family and neighbor care. You'll hear me refer to it as FFM. Colorado has some of the most expensive child care costs in the country, by some estimates, the fifth highest in the nation. We're looking at 16,000 and up here in Colorado, where the national average is around 10. Can you tell us, um, you know, often friend, family, and neighbor care is, is not front seat in the conversation around child care. I've seen it across the country. You know, we're talking about providers, we're talking about, you know, you can be educated, you can have lots of letters after your name, you can spend a lot of time in higher education being prepared to take care of little ones. But that's not always how it works. And it's not always how it works best for families. Um, can you tell us about that care model here in Colorado and why it needs to have a front seat whenever we talk about child care and early education? Yes, <laughs> I absolutely can. She has a big smile on her face, listeners. You can't see. She's like, yes, this is my topic. So I want to just say that the reason why FFN care is not often at the same level as when we're talking about center-based care or licensed home-based care is because of the idea that when we talk, when we talk about child care, we don't actually consider FFN as child care. We've heard even a couple of references today that, that there's so many parts of our state that we have as childcare deserts. And I push back against that and I say, they're absolutely not childcare deserts. They are licensed childcare deserts because where there aren't licensed facilities, there are always FFN. There will always be a friend, 
a neighbor or a family member there to take care of a kid somewhere that is in need. And we saw that, especially in the pandemic, when so many centers had to shut down, the few that were lucky enough to still be able to work remotely, the the folks that weren't able to and still had to go in and become our essential workers, of which we still forget to include childcare workers as essential workers. Who cared for those kids? FFN providers did. And when we think about who are these FFN providers and who use them, We know here in Colorado especially, largely our black and brown communities, our immigrant communities, our refugee communities rely on FFN for multiple reasons, because it's more culturally relevant, because they speak the language that they speak at home, because it's affordable in the sense that FFN providers do this because they just love it and they love the kids and they love the family and they don't know how to look at their sister and say, I'll take care of your kid, but you got to pay me $80 a day. They say, yes, I'll do this because I love my niece or nephew. And recently over the last five years, I will say that all the folks in this room have recognized that that's not enough because we cannot just continue to take advantage of the thousands of FFN providers without ensuring that they are also properly equipped, that they are compensated, that they are given access to healthy nutrition. Because the other thing is that FFN providers are going to feed the kids that come to their homes out of their own cabinets. What kind of support are you seeing come through, if any? I will say that I am so proud of this state to be the first state in the nation to establish a program that was allowed. We were able to do this because of the ARPA dollars. That money established a full-time FFN staff person in the Department of Early Childhood. It created an FFN advisory council that can advise CDEC, our Department of Early Childhood, on issues. Whenever there's early childhood issues, childcare issues, FFN, the advisory council, will be there to help advise as well. And it established a grant to be able to provide FFN providers with professional development opportunities to learn not only how to keep kids safe, but also how to prepare them for entering kindergarten Again, largely black and brown kids that when they enter kindergarten are already behind their white peers. So this actually helps them to be able to help these kiddos be at the same level as their white peers when they enter kindergarten. Have you ever wondered if knowing more is always good? Or if we can really trust our gut? or how change actually happens. For answers, I turn to Kelly Corrigan Wonders, a weekly podcast I just love. If you haven't heard of her, Kelly has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah Magazine calls Kelly the voice of a generation. The Huffington Post calls her the poet laureate of the ordinary. Her podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, has thousands of five-star reviews that emphasize thought-provoking, funny, authentic, It also has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore and Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithcott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Together they help us focus on the long game of parenting, create support systems, and keep our lives 
in good working order. Subscribe to Kelly Corgan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. It's so interesting to me because I think until this discussion, I came into this very much including that home care provider in the discussion, in all discussions, because one of the founders of Lemonada Media found an incredible home care provider for her own daughter and very early on educated me about how intrinsic, important, and inherent those roles are when we talk about child care and early education. And one of the many great things is that it just enables more children to be taken care of, which takes me back to Lauren because what Steamboat is doing, and what is the program called? Steamboat Child Care Center. Very much like, well, now Patagonia's is called the Great Pacific something something. Yep. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, but Steamboat is opening spots to children in need because another center closed. Yes. Not solely because another center closed, but a decision was made to open it up to more than only resort employees. Am I correct? Um, yes, I say that hesitantly again. Uh, we absolutely created the center to be prioritizing staff. We want to use it as a recruitment and a retention tool, and we will always prioritize our staff over community members. The two community components to it is, one, through surveying and understanding our employee needs, we knew in the first three to five years, we don't have enough staff members to fill all 35, and hopefully in the future more spaces, which would mean that we would open up to community members if space is available. What we ultimately saw as one of the greatest benefits for the community, and I'm a great example of this, is that my daughter was in the to be honest, the only community center that had infants that wasn't private in Steamboat, she was in that facility. As soon as the Steamboat uh, Child Care Center opened, she transitioned, which means that there was a space at the community center open for a community member not employed by SSRC. So yes, we are creating an employer-based facility that does prioritize our staff, but by doing so, we are effectively creating 35 spaces in the community centers that would have been taken by our staff members. I mean, I hear that as a very positive domino effect, right? And I know that argument, well, it's a Band-Aid. Yes, that's out there. But in the context of that, this seems like a really good thing to me to open up more spots. And if I could say, I, I'm very aware of the conversations that tying childcare to a job is difficult. There are pros and cons. I hear and I see all of them. But I think our philosophy is, again, if no one else is coming to save us, we have to do something to save ourselves. And that is what we are trying to do at Steamboat Ski Resort. And I think somebody needs to start the trend. 
one of the reasons employer-based childcare is a difficult discussion is because people say, if I leave the job, I'm going to lose childcare. So even though I don't like my job, for whatever reason, I'm going to stay. And that's a bad thing. Well, the reason that's a problem is because there's no other employer's offering childcare to provide the opportunity for someone to say, I don't like my job here, I'm going to go there. Again, as I said, exception versus expectation, we all expect some sort of health insurance from most major companies. So when I'm leaving a job, yeah, I look to see that they have health benefits, but I assume that they're going to. That's not a reason I'm not going to go there. Right now, childcare is not an expectation at other companies. So if someone does work for Steamboat Ski Resort and they don't enjoy it and they want to find a new job, that absolutely is a limitation. If we can move to an area where more employers offer childcare, then people have the opportunity to look for other jobs and not worry that childcare is not an opportunity. So let me ask you this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Applaud that. Um, As you were in your discussions, can you answer just briefly, was the argument made, let's publicize this. Let's brand it as a benefit when we're looking to recruit. And that was understood immediately. Okay. Yes, we can use that. Absolutely. I Again, full circle, I'm just a fan of this podcast, but being on this podcast is part of what we see as our responsibility for opening the center. Um, my job is to get publicity for the resort, but <laughs> I do believe that we have a role now to be advocates for employer-based facilities. It is our responsibility to make other companies know why this is critical, why this is possible, and I am going to work my little hiney off to make sure every opportunity we have to boast about our center is not only a recruitment tactic. I want people to come work for us, but I want other industries, not even just the ski industry or hospitality industry. I want other industries to look to us as an example of how and why this is a possibility. I know you think about hospitality. The hospitality business is a great place for this to start if it has to start somewhere, right? Um, Natrice, so let's take this to uh, public education, right? Um, Because one of the great things about the state of Colorado, uh, thank you to everyone who worked with Governor Polis's leadership to implement universal pre-K for all. It's incredible. It should be everywhere. Uh, There's a conversation about drawing down public education, right? Using the public education model for, you know, infant to pre-K age level kids. If we've recognized that universal pre-K is vital, right? It's important enough to make happen. How should we then think about early child care and education? As we look at universal pre-K, I think that the benefit of it is that it gives us 10 hours a week of preschool care for all families. However, I don't work 10 hours. You don't work 10 hours. None of us work 10 hours. So there has to be an additional supplement of where do we put our children after they get out of school. And like I said, I have older children. So I remember this this conversation and this thought process of, okay, they go to school from 9 to 11. What do they do from 11 until 5? And so looking at the broader concept and figuring out, do we have enough space, whether it be FFN or whether it be any other type of concept, we have to look at this as a broader picture. We don't treat our children only two hours a day. We treat our children 24 hours a day, even when they're sleeping. And how fast does nine to 11 go by? Yeah, so quick. (laughs) By the time you drop them off, you're back at the parking lot waiting to pick them up. And so we have to look at it from a broader picture. And the work that we're doing is not done solo. I, I have to give credit to the Department of Early Childhood through looking at human services, all of our all of our organizations have to work together to figure out what is that wraparound service, wraparound continuum of care look like for our children. We look at it 
from the perspective of we do it for adults, we do it when we're trying to figure out mental health, behavioral health, those components, what what bigger picture do we need to look at? And I think there's some good models as we're looking at broadening our scope. And to be clear, our childcare is not only for our children at the state. We do know that we have to open our doors to other people in the community, which is why we look at how many seats do we have? How many seats do we have available for community? And so that is how we're bringing in children. When we're building things, we're thinking about it from the perspective of we're creating this many seats for this many children. We know we're not going to be able to solve the problem of all children being served at a state center. But we also recognize that the conversation and the bigger picture is that we're creating space in other spaces that wouldn't necessarily be available. And so there's there's the conversation that we have to look at from, do we bring all kids into the centers? Do we bring all kids into different spaces that's not just a center? But how do we look at the broader scope of we have infants, and that's the most expensive group of children to take care of, providing additional beds for the children opens up space for the neighborhood individual to be able to watch another set of children. It opens up space for a spot in preschool to be opened up so that a child can go there. So although we're not going to be able to capture every child in the state, we're able to open up spaces and allow for that continuum to open and bring children into the spaces that they need to. It doesn't solve the issues that we're looking at in regard to space and availability. And I love when you said that we can't refer to them as deserts because one, it feels negative, but two, it also feels like we are discounting the work that's being done of people who do watch children that are not licensed. But the bigger picture really does become if we're able to capture a hundred kids, that's a hundred kids that are not being left behind, being able to come into school at the right level, learning to read at the right level. And so I think that it's just a, a broader scope that we have to continue to take into consideration. And the more funding that we're able to get for that, I think the more doors we'll be able to open for our children. Right. It always comes down to funding, right? It, you know, and it, it takes me back to Lorena because I think there's a very powerful message in refuting the classification of a childcare desert, right? Yes, it's negative and it's untrue. Something that I'm excited about learning, hearing more about is the cultural component we were in Oklahoma, an entire generation is no longer speaking several different dialects. And now family providers, friend providers are being paid to take in children, speak that language. So what is your goal for FFNs and how they're perceived in the future? And how critical is that cultural component to what's happening in those homes? My, my goal for FFN providers is to be recognized and valued for the services that they're providing. That means that families who utilize FFN providers are also eligible to receive subsidies to pay their FFN providers a living wage. We know that there's FFN providers that can become a certain classification. We're here in Colorado, it's called qualified license exempt. And then they can get between, I think now it's 16 and $21 a day per child. So is that something? Absolutely. It's something. It, it helps supplement what they're already putting into it. But is it just? Is it fair? Is it right? Absolutely not. So we need to come up with a system here that compensates FFN providers, compensates licensed home-based providers, compensates providers and centers much better. I mean, think, why in the world do we think it's okay to pay providers in which we are trusting our most precious thing in the world 
minimum wage. Why is that satisfactory to anyone? To me, I, I just find that absurd. All these lawmakers, of which I'm one, I know, that decide to say we can't invest in that, I think you've got to be kidding me. What you are unwilling to invest in shows what you value at home. Well, when I hear your passion for rethinking this, not in a business context, it makes me think there is room for collaboration towards what it really should be thought of, which is a right. It should be investment in the citizens of this country as they make a transition from being someone who does not have children to someone who then does, any way they get to that, you know, any way they become a parent. It makes me think that if that kind of passion can convince people, you know, we've said the, the term revenue stream, right? It's not, it's not a revenue generator, right? No, it's not. And that's where I think the two sides, those who say, you know what, employer-based childcare is not the answer. Well, it's the answer when there's nothing else. You know, that's where I sit. But there's room for cohesion in the ultimate fight to have this seen as a right that everyone deserves. Okay, Lauren, go ahead. I, I love this passion because I think it was maybe the DC episode where uh, there was a great distinction between child care and early childhood education. And our country absolutely looks at this as child care, which is babysitting. And it's not. Zero to three is some of the most impactful years for a child's brain. And we are saying that it's not as important as K through 12. And so once we can change that conversation, you're absolutely right, to being how do I just find a place to put my child so that I can get a paycheck to how do I actually advance my child's brain and development in its most integral years, then we're taking it away from being child care to being child education. And then there are, it's more valued by anybody who facilitates it. Can I, can I add one more thing? So, you know, one of the things that we've seen across the country is a whole bunch of economists are suddenly freaking out because they're like, oh my gosh, people aren't having enough kids. Babies turn into young kids, young kids turn into teenagers, teenagers turn into adults, adults turn into what? A workforce. And if there's not enough people to continue to build an economy in this country, then we're going to start seeing a decline. So economists are looking at, we need to make sure and figure out how do we get these couples to make babies? What we need to do, if we want to buy into that type of argument, is looking at the fact that we are not going to have an adequate, skilled workforce if we are not investing in every single human being from the time that they're born. Can I add something to that? Sorry, yeah, I'm going to add No, I love it. Get <laughs> um, in there. So the funding mechanism that I was talking about, that's, that's what I think we're having a conversation about, right? We put money into colleges. We put money into K through 12. But we have to come up with a financial model, not from a business perspective, but a model that allows for us to invest in our children from the day they're born until eternity, right? And so I think what we're starting to see is not just the state, I'll toot my own horn because we're a state, right? But looking at different ways in which government can support that. And that's through legislation. That's through having conversations about grant programs. I mean, we have partners in here that are trying to come up with creative ways of how do we incentivize people to think differently? And unfortunately, that's through money, right? And so if we're looking at ways in which we can take 
our tax dollars and turn those into education dollars and turn those education dollars into working, functioning human beings that get into our adult phases. I mean, when we look at what happened in the pandemic, and I don't mean to bring that up continuously, but we started to see more value in our blue collar workers because they kept this economy going. And so if we put that same energy in our children from the time that they're born and put that same energy in those funding dollars into what children can be and what they should be, then I think we'll start to see our gaps decrease. And so that's a, that's a space where I feel like we really need to focus on is the financial models of investment in the education component, not just building capital. Right. And we have the data artillery to support us. We've had it through Patagonia, which has shown incredible retention. They've had young people in their program who've come back to Patagonia as employees, but also in Canada, where in one province in 1996, they increased taxes, they created early childcare and education They saw more women return to the workforce. They saw an increase, therefore, in tax dollars. And the data for these young children, lower incarceration rates, higher graduation rates from high school. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And that seed is planted from zero to four, zero to five. So, well, Lauren, I do have a question for you. So have you seen something concrete in how offering childcare and early education has impacted the resort? What do you see on the ground there? Yes, we definitely, even though we haven't even been open for a full year, we anecdotally have a lot of examples of why this was the right thing and that it's already successful. One of my favorite stories is that we had um, two instructors who joined our workforce this year who have traveled around the world, Australia, New Zealand, North America, Europe, to be ski instructors. And this year they chose Steamboat because they have a son and they wanted to utilize our childcare center. So it was phenomenal to hear that story because that is the exact reason that we started it was to to be able to recruit people who needed family assistance. So we believe that when we start to collect data and actually do surveys, we will see the return. One last question for Lorena. Um, Coming off your passionate speech just then, thank you for that. Um, So what are we going to do about it? How are you going to convince lawmakers? How do we make that argument to put funds into early education and childcare and make it permanent? We need new lawmakers. We need new lawmakers. <laughs> okay, good. Run for office. End of show. Thank you so much for coming. Um, <laughs> so I, one, of the, one of the challenges that we face as states is we will... Well, everything you're saying around child care is a right. It should be a right. I'm 100% there. Can we ever get there as a state individually? No, we can't. Not without federal support. We've done it before. We've had universal, public good, totally supported childcare in the past when it served the country. It's necessary now because it has never stopped serving the country. What stopped is the recognition that, hey, women can go back home. So we are still in this place where we are a country that is run by sexist values that we don't need to fully invest in early childhood, in childcare as a nation because women can just stay home. We need new lawmakers. And I, I was joking and not joking because we need to get that type of mentality and that type of lawmaking out of the capital systems. And until that happens, we are going to continue being individually hodgepodging 
the limited dollars that we have as states to do the best that we can for as many kids as we can. And that still will never be good enough. So I'm going to amend your comment because you said we need new lawmakers. And I want to shout out the many people in the audience and especially the men in the audience. Um, This is the largest audience we've had, but this is also the largest number of men I've seen in the audience. So hats off to you. But I think to amend your statement, we need new lawmakers who care about children. Yes, that's I'll I'll accept that amendment. Okay, (laughs) amendment accepted. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And we would like to invite you on a hilarious and heartfelt journey each week on The Deep Dive. From navigating the chaos of motherhood and family to exploring the depths of grief and loss, we are just two best friends who process life together and with you guys. Discover our secrets to finding joy amidst the madness and get ready for unfiltered conversations about life, love, and everything in between. And nails. We talk a lot about nails. Now, community is everything to us at The Deep Dive. We believe in the power of connection and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. If you've heard this podcast so far this season, you know that this is the part of the show where we often bring out our dear friend Latoya Gale from Neighborhood Villages, and she helps us really sum up very concisely what we've heard from our panelists and inspire us to take action, specific action, really wherever you're listening, whatever state you're listening from. Um, Latoya right now is out there doing this important work right now herself. So tonight we have our dear friend, Stephanie Clothier from Gary Community Ventures. She's joining us. Gary's founders, Sam and Nancy Gary, really have been true pioneers in Colorado's early childhood spaces for decades. And we are so grateful at No One Is Coming to Save Us in Neighborhood Villages for all that they do. Um, Those here know that Steph, as the director of school readiness at Gary and most recently working with the governor's office, she passed, helped pass, and implement Colorado's universal preschool ballot measure just in 2020. We are so lucky to have you here with us tonight, Stephanie. Welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. We will take questions from the audience uh, if you have them in just a moment. We hope to, but we have a lot of questions for Steph too. So we're going to start with those. Um, Stephanie, when we talk about what is happening here in Colorado, what are your reflections 
right? A few years out after passing universal pre-K and hearing everything that everyone shared tonight, what are your reflections about the childcare shortage and what the work ahead entails? Thanks so much for the question. I mean, I think this panel did an amazing job of really highlighting the strategies that we need to use going forward. Uh, in Colorado, we did pass universal preschool, and it's going to be implemented this fall. Uh, children will get their first you know, uh, ability to, to take a spot in universal preschool, and it's going to be fantastic. But that is, as our panel has said, one piece of the child care puzzle. Uh, that will make a portion of preschool affordable for families. But now we have to turn to childcare and we have to really uh, meet the needs of families across the zero to five spectrum. So I think what's amazing about this panel and what we hoped to um, share with the audience really are the variety of strategies we're going to need to put into place to really meet the shortage problem. And so, of course, it's inadequate, right? We we are not going to get there with you know, very small efforts, but through a unique and creative set of strategies, we're going to definitely tackle parts of this problem. So, you know, I think we have the private sector has a real opportunity to step in and play a role. And I think that means playing a role at the local level for facilities. It also means thinking about what their role is in generating revenue for childcare. So what are they, what are they going to do there? I think this is also a great example of government thinking creatively and outside the box around what do we have to contribute to this problem? And I think really understanding how grassroots organizations really know what's happening on the ground and what we can do next. So I think this panel did a great job of thinking about how we address the shortage of childcare. I also agree that what we really have to think about is then where do we find more revenue? Like we have these as piecemeal solutions, but we need federal revenue, absolutely. We need to make a state commitment to childcare, to supply to childcare providers as a sector, and to making it affordable for families. And we have opportunities for cities and communities to do that as well. So I think that's our future. Let me ask you a quick question. Um, Governor Polis, of course, he's you know been named and pointed to many times as leading the charge for the good on childcare and early education. Um, will there be a continuum to the work that Governor Polis has led? Well, I think I'm actually going to uh, start with the conversation about Governor Polis okay. because we've never had a champion in the state like Governor Polis. I mean, he has implemented he implemented full day kindergarten, and then he followed through on his campaign promise for universal preschool, and he was relentless. He is an extraordinary champion. He has said all along that he cares about children in the full age spectrum of zero to five. And so now it's our job as advocates to go back to him and say, what's next on the childcare front? And we know he cares a lot about infants and toddlers. That's been clear also in the new Department of Early Childhood when they've really thought about how do we create more supply of infant and toddler care. So it's, it's definitely on the radar. And I think we need to rely on this governor to take us there. So I think, I think that's going to be really important for us. I also want to recognize our state legislature uh, during all of the preschool debates and the discussion around a new Department of Early Childhood, we had state leaders in the legislature pushing that through. So we've had leadership at all levels. The governor, the legislature, local communities who are now implementing have all been critical. And you just said something very important. You just referenced the Department of Early Childhood, right? That's something not every state has. It's been here a hot minute in Colorado. And if you're listening, wherever you are, 
advocate for a Department of Early Childhood. That does not exist in states, and it needs to, urgently. Um, Steph, another thing that came out during this discussion was how much all these disparate groups respect, understand, and collaborate. So what would you say to people in other states when they look at Colorado and right, we might get the headline, universal pre-K for all. Now we're focusing on zero to four. But what can they take away in the context of collaboration and doing their own states? Well, I think, I mean, I think Colorado in some ways is unique. We have been partnering together and I look out into the audience and see people that have been working on these issues for decades, right? We also had the chance to really come together during the pandemic, which I think all states did, really. And to say, oh my goodness, Childcare, we realize, of course, we've all re- realized this, but the childcare is an essential, essential part of communities. And, and, and we all really, we work together like every day, practically during the pandemic. I mean, some of us have met weekly ever since, right? So it's really about pulling together all the, the possible champions you can find. And I really think that this panel is also emblematic of that, right? We're going to need our lawmakers. We're going to need our private sector. We're going to need communities. We're going to need activists. We're going to need families in order to get this done. Right. Um, You talk about how the pandemic brought us together in new ways. Did you see people stepping up that you had not been working with in the prior time that you've been in this in this work? Did you see some surprising groups organize and come to you with ideas that then became a part of your strategy and plan? Well, I would say, I mean, people came out, came out of the woodwork constantly. I mean, you get emails, you get phone calls, you, people saying, what can I do? I mean, and there were big problems to solve. I mean, whether that was helping uh, child care centers get, you know, cleaning supplies, there were none. Like, people figured out how we were going to do, do that logistically. I mean, people, people with all kinds of skills stepped in to help, and that's what was key. I'm thinking of the co-founder of Neighborhood Villages, Sarah Muncy, who figured out how to do COVID testing to get those doors back open again. She, rightly so, is so proud of that, but no small task, mm-hmm. right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, Gary Community Ventures actually set up a company to do that so that people would have access to COVID mm-hmm. tests. Mm-hmm. So thinking creatively, stepping up, right? I mean, I always say before this podcast, I was not a child care voter. I mean, I, I live in Washington, D.C., but grew up in Seattle. Um, so two places where I sort of assumed I grew up in a dual household. My father was Republican. My mother was Democrat. But we all agreed child care is important. But you have to figure out who your representatives are. And if they're not on board or it's not readily apparent that they're on board, call the office. I mean, it's one thing that hasn't changed so much in this new digital age. Pick up the phone, get on your email, make it clear that that's how you're going to win or lose a vote. That's right. Right? Um, So I'm looking at my producer, Kyle Sheely, who's beautifully attired in all lemonade motif, (laughs) lemon or lemonade motif. Um, And I do think we have time for some questions. Yes, he's nodding. Okay. So the first question. Hi, uh, my name is Elliot Haspel. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The baby has a question, I think, too. Um, So my question is, Colorado, one thing I appreciate about the state is it's uh, it's very generalizable in some ways. Uh, This is not a tiny state, with all my love to friends in places like Vermont that have had wins recently around childcare. It's not super blue. It's not super red. Um, So what can other states take away from the Colorado story? Like, what are some of the things here that we can uh, try to export to, to other states around the country? 
you want me to go ahead and take that as a sure. person? Okay, perfect. <laughs> so thank you for the question. Um, so I think one of the things that we can take from this is that we had to create legislation and a new office to focus on it. As we started a new department, I don't know how many of you know how hard it is to start a new department in state government, but to create a new department and take the workers that were already doing the work and move them into what they have now as their own work and their own department and highlight that is one step in the right direction. Another thing that was helpful is creating legislation that allowed for us to create primary focus on development of capital and capital construction that allows for us to build things that people can come to. And so I I know I keep talking about the financing component, but that money behind it and the legislation behind it to say that this is what the state will do is something that's been, I mean, inimaginable thing that we we can't just keep talking about it. And so we've actually put legislation and money behind doing something about it. Okay, we have time for one more question from a very special member of the audience. I'm Sinclair. I'm Gloria Riviere's daughter. I will be in third grade next year at our neighborhood public school, Horseman. I know that not everyone in my school got to go to a preschool or nursery school. I'm really lucky because my family was able to pay for me to do that. I felt I felt ready for kindergarten. My brain was ready. Other kids were not so ready, and they had a, a harder time. My question is, how do we make sure young kids have a chance for early child care and education? education. How do we make sure babies and little kids are not forgotten? Uh, That is a brilliant question. Um, No offense to anyone else, but I think that was the smartest (laughs) question today. Uh, the, The word you used of forgotten struck me to my core, and it really, really, it made me choke up, and it's making me all shaky right now, and I'm getting a little sweaty. I think right now what I can say is in the large scheme of things, our toddlers and babies are already forgotten, which is why we have virtually no licensed care that can meet that need, and which is why that age group is seen as an afterthought a little bit in what we're going to invest in in as a state. But there is a solution. Because where are our little babies and our toddlers? Anyone have a guess? FFN! (laughs) (laughs) So we need to invest, and I will say money, we need to invest in the professional development of our FFN providers You know, we need to make sure that no matter what type of provider that you were sent to or that you're sent to or any of the other cutie little kiddos that are sent here, that they are in a provider's care that knows how to help kids learn how to read, how to pick up a fork, how to tell the colors, how to build blocks. We need to do that and we can. We can absolutely do that for every provider, no matter what setting. And the only other thing I'll add is um, your voice is an important voice. Everybody's voice is an important voice. And what I'm really proud of that we did in Steamboat is um, we just had a passion and we pushed it through. You do not have to be in a place of power. You do not have to be in a place of wealth. All those things help. But your voice is your most important tool. And as long as someone is out there advocating for our children, there is definitely hope. 
This has been a terrific evening. I can't thank you all enough. Those were great questions from everyone. Steph, thank you for your answers, for your insights on what you heard here tonight. Um, I just want to say that when I was interviewing to host the first season of No One Is Coming to Save Us, I really felt my youngest was then ready for pre-K. That seems like a long time ago when you were little. Um, and I just, I felt like I, I didn't want to think about those early years anymore because I got through them. But I don't want what our system offers right now. I don't want the current crisis. I know we use that word a lot of what early education and childcare looks like. I don't want that to be what my daughter faces if she, when she, hopefully, <laughs> um, decides to have a family in any way that family comes to her. I don't want her to be asking the same question my mother asked in 1963. I need someone to care for my child so I can go to work. Um, so we're going to change it. And yes, your voice is important. That is it for our show tonight. What an amazing evening. Thank you so much to our partners at Neighborhood Villages. Thank you to Gary Community Ventures and Rocky Mountain PBS for their support of this event, as well as Colorado Children's Campaign and Epic for their collaboration ahead of this event. Thank you, of course, to our amazing guests, Lauren Duke, Communications Director for Steamboat Ski and Resort. You get to say you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Natrice Bryant, Public-Private Partnership Director for the Department of Personnel and Administration with the State of Colorado. Thank you for having me. Lorena Garcia, CEO of Colorado Parent Coalition. Representative Lorena Garcia. Yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and really um, a heartfelt thank you to all of you who came here tonight to support the show, to hear what these amazing advocates had to say. So thank you to you too. Um, and if you're listening at home, join us again next week for another episode of No One Is Coming to Save Us. No One Is Coming to Save Us is a Lemonada original produced with Neighborhood Villages. The show is produced by Kyle Sheely and Martine Macias. Our audio engineer is Noah Smith. Music is by Hannes Brown. Our VP of weekly content is Steve Nelson. Our executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax and Jessica Cordova-Kramer, along with me, Gloria Riviera. If you like the show and you believe what we are doing is important, please help others find us by leaving us a rating and writing us a review, and most importantly, by telling your friends. Follow No One Is Coming to Save Us wherever you get your podcasts or listen ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Until then, hang in there. You can do this. In 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since then, it's been a barrage of bad news. But behind the bleak headlines, there are people working to protect our right to control our future. The Defenders is a new 10-part series about the fight for freedom in a post-Roe America. Co-hosted by Samantha Bee and me, Gloria Riviera, the show will examine ways people are still accessing care, from crossing state borders to self-managed abortion. You'll hear from activists, providers, and everyday people doing the work to expand reproductive freedom. 
We're here to tell you, anyone can become a Defender. The Defenders is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey friends, it's Megan Trainer And her big bro, Ryan Trainer And her husband, Daryl Sabara. Each week on our podcast, Working On It, we share behind-the-scenes stories and bring you into our hilarious and heartfelt conversations, and sometimes with amazing guests. We tackle everything from navigating Hollywood to mental health to Megan becoming a mother, Daryl becoming a father, and so much more. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of our lives and leave no detail behind. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. Listen to new episodes out every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts.